After a considerable break in our series on the book of Genesis, we come once again to the book of Genesis this morning. I invite you to turn with me, therefore, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We've been giving special concentration on these early chapters of the Bible, which are the foundation of everything else that we read in the Word of God. And in this chapter, we have a sad account of how man fell into sin, and then how he refused at first to repent of his sin. Please follow along as I read from Genesis chapter 3, and the, I want to begin with verse 7, which follows up upon the eating of the forbidden fruit. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard the, your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Once again, let's pray that God would help us understand and apply his word. Most blessed and gracious God, we do thank you and praise you that you are indeed the great God that you are. We thank you, Father, that you have been pleased to reveal unto us this sad account. And yet we would not reject it because it's depressing, but we would receive what we read here as being something that's important for us to know something that you would have in order that we might be right with you, in order that this sad fall into sin might be reversed through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would expose our hearts unto yourself and unto ourselves. Help us to see ourselves as you see us more and more, and help us to repent of our sin, help us to return to you, we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In his discipleship journal, Don McCullough writes this. John Killinger tells about the manager of a minor baseball team who was so disgusted with his center fielder's performance that he ordered him to the dugout and assumed the position himself. The first ball that came into center field took a bad hop and hit the manager in the mouth. The next one was a high fly ball and he lost it in the glare of the sun until it bounced off his forehead. The third was a hard line drive that he charged with his outstretched arms and unfortunately it flew between his hands and smacked his eye. So furious he ran back to the dugout and he grabbed the center fielder by the uniform and he shouted, you idiot! You have the center field so messed up that I even can't do anything with it. Well, this 
humorous incident to illustrates the way in which we blame shift to cover our faults and our sins. And blame shifting is just one of the many ways in which we seek to cover our sins in the presence of God. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And both in Proverbs 28, 13, which I've just quoted, and also in Genesis chapter 3, the words we just read, the person in view is a sinner still clinging to his sin. And instead of confessing and forsaking their sin, Adam and Eve, they sought to cover their sin and excuse their sin. And the verses that we just read, they feature three ways by which they sought to cover their sin. And all three of them are listed in the outlines that are provided in your bulletins. There was the covering of physical concealment, of spiritual avoidance, and evasive blame shifting. In our last sermon in this series, we honed in on the first two of these efforts to cover sin. And since this series has been interrupted by a number of sermons on the office of elder, as we prepared our hearts to to recognize God's gift among us, Drew Grumbles. We return now to Genesis after this lengthy break, and we therefore, I want to take a few moments to summarize the first two headings that are there in your bulletins, which actually were our two main points in our last sermon. The first way that they sought to cover their sin is by way of physical concealment. And so we read in verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now the serpent had said that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes would be opened. But when they ate, they didn't acquire the kind of knowledge that they expected. Instead, we are told that their eyes were opened to see what they had just done. And as a result, they knew that they were naked. For the first time, their nakedness made them feel ashamed. And their first response was to resort to physical concealment. And this concealment had both a horizontal and vertical element to it. Its horizontal element was to conceal themselves from one another. What we read here is in sharp contrast with what we read in their pre-fall experience back in chapter 2 and verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now they were naked and ashamed. Their original nakedness symbolized their complete openness to one another. They were transparent with one another. They hid nothing from one another. A blessed marriage indeed. No higher thing can be experienced, I think, among a man and a woman than this kind of transparency and openness and communion of fellowship. No secrets were between them. But now, for the first time, their physical differences are highlighted. They feel the need to protect themselves from one another, to cover themselves. And ever since that awful day, the complete transparency that once existed in the first marriage has been replaced by the various ways in which we hide things from one another as husband and wife. That was the horizontal element. In addition, there was a vertical concealment. 
Having, you see, lost their innocence, Adam and Eve, they tried to cover themselves in the sight of God. And rather than drive them back to God in humble confession of sin, their first response was to sow fig leaves together. And the author of this narrative, he includes this part of the, of the historical narrative in order that we might see how utterly ludicrous it is to try to hide from God. An omniscient God can see, obviously, what's inside those fig leaves. And the vain ways that men and women try to cover their sins from the sight of God are multitudinous. Primitive tribes, they burn their infants alive in order to get acceptance with God. In Western cultures, we don't burn our children, we just kill them. We kill them in the womb. And in Western cultures, we have sought to cover our sins with pilgrimages and flagellations and fingering rosy, rosary beads and the like. We do all these things in order to get acceptance and have our sins covered, you see, in the sight of the omniscient God. Well, this is the first kind of covering, the covering of physical concealment. And the second kind of covering that we read of here in the verses that we read is that of spiritual avoidance. We read in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now our first parents, they had no reason to expect that God was going to appear in any other way now but judgment and as an executioner. And therefore you can imagine the suspense and dread that they experienced. Their hearts must have been beating within them as they heard God drawing near with the rustling of the leaves in the garden. And they were terrified, therefore. And so the first thing they did was to try to hide themselves from God and the, among the trees of the garden. Previously, though, his approach filled their hearts with joy. It was the highlight of the day to fellowship with God. They loved God before they fell into sin. But after they had sinned, as they heard God's approach, they were terrified. And they hid themselves. And ever since that dark day... Sinners have sought to avoid God's word by hiding themselves in one way after another. They criticize the preacher because he brings the word of God. They don't want to be pricked and probed by the word. Or they complain that the church is always asking for money. Or that the people are not very friendly. Or the sermon is too long. They come up all kinds of reasons why they don't want to hear what God would say. And if this is the attitude of your heart, the real reason why you want to avoid, you see, the word of God being preached is that you don't want to be confronted by God. You want to hide yourself from what God would say to you. You're forced maybe by your parents to come. And you want to put out of your mind, even though you're here, the things that are being said. And the reason is this, that God is here. God speaks to us through his word. And you don't want to hear it. It's another form, you see, of covering your sin and hiding from God, whose holiness exposes your sin. But we come this morning to a third sort of covering that's displayed in Genesis chapter 3, and it is that of evasive blame-shifting. And I want to read once again what we have here in verses 11 to 13. And he said, that is, God said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, The woman whom you gave to me with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, we must not lose sight of the situation here. Terrified over the sound of God's approach, Adam and Eve have now been forced to come out of their hiding place into the blazing holiness of God's presence. And previously, they had experienced a father-child relationship with God. Now this was a relationship of judge and criminal. Paradise has now become a courtroom, and the gardeners are now criminals on trial. And in this courtroom, there are no prosecutors or defense attorneys, defense attorneys, because the judge is he's omniscient. He doesn't need to have all kinds of arguments presented pro and con. His searching questions are asked, not that he might get information from them, not that he might discover the truth of the situation, but rather that they might see and they be convinced of their wickedness. Now, God didn't begin by reading an indictment that had been delivered by some kind of a grand jury that would prepare the way for the opening, for the statements of the, of the disputants, the, the prosecution and the defense attorneys to make their arguments. But instead, he questioned them with a view to bringing them to an honest evaluation themselves over what they had done and with a view to leading them to a willing and unreserved confession of their sin. They had willfully disobeyed God's plain command. So God questioned them in order that they might grasp the enormity of their crime, in order that he might lead them to shame and remorse. Well, Adam has just explained why he has been hiding. He has said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And now God asks him, who told you that you were naked? Verse 11. Now, nakedness is not a condition of which somebody would just be ignorant. You don't have to have somebody tell you that you're naked or not. Who told you that you were naked? Was the serpent? Did he tell you? Was it the woman? Was it your own eyes? And what's behind this question that God is asking? Well, the last verse of chapter 2 gives us a clue. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were unashamed. Previously, their nakedness brought no shame. So God is asking, why then is your nakedness all of a sudden a concern to you? And the difference is that before that they had sinned, they were naked and unashamed. But after they sinned, they were naked and now ashamed. And God's question, therefore, was calculated to get them to ask themselves what it was that led them from being naked and unashamed to being naked now and ashamed. And the shame came from one source, their sin. So God asked them, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And unlike God's earlier questions, which had the outward form of soliciting information. In this question, God became the prosecutor. But rather than charge the man with a crime, 
God is bringing the man himself to acknowledge the crime. God doesn't need this answer by way of information. He wants to bring the man to see what he sees. But lying under this prosecutorial question was grace. And this question urges Adam, you see, to confession rather than be than condemnation. And it also solicits a frank, unequivocal confession, not making things up to excuse it. Now, Satan had begun his temptation by asking, has God indeed said? And God's question was not merely asking something that he had said. It was about what he had commanded. Have you eaten from the tree of, what I, of which I commanded? Interesting, Satan left that part out in his temptation. Did you eat of that tree that I, that I commanded you not to eat? His prohibition about the tree was not just a suggestion, it was a command. But sadly, Adam, he didn't respond by way of confession, but by way of extenuation. Rather than confess without equivocation that he had disobeyed God's command, Adam then went right to blame shifting, and Eve then resorted to the same thing. And this blame shifting took three forms. And these three things are listed there in the bulletins that you have. First of all, Adam blamed Eve. Verse 12. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the original, the independent personal pronoun, she, is added by way of emphasis. Sometimes it's part of the word itself. But it's added by way of emphasis. In other words, it's her fault. She gave me this fruit. These are the words of a man whose affections have died. Do you remember Adam's ecstasy when he first laid eyes upon Eve? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Those were the first human words recorded in scripture. Adam's excitement at seeing his bride. And they're recorded as a poetic couplet. And they burst forth from the heart of a man, therefore, whose heart is enraptured with the wonder of what God had given to him. As his one flesh wife, she was his helper, answering to his needs. She was his intimate lover, his lifelong companion, his one and only human joy. She was his human universe. But now Adam turns against her and begins to be her accuser. She gave me the, of the tree and I ate. What infamous treachery. It's her fault, God. Don't blame me. How could Adam be so calculating and cold? So much for their honeymoon. Now, Adam would live for nearly 930 more years. And they would settle things between the two of them. But in human terms, it was now paradise lost. And apart from God's presence, the sweetest of all of Adam's joys was his dear companion, his wife. And now Adam is effectively said to Eve, you're on your own. How heartless. This is the dastardly selfishness of sin. 
When we're in a tight corner, we don't mind who gets hurt, even people that are closest to us. And rather than own up to our sin, we're willing to blame those that we ought to love the most. Adam was willing to have Eve damned so that he could be go free. Martin Luther spoke of the curvedness of man's heart. And he uses that word to describe how our affections are curved in upon ourselves. And if any incident exemplifies this selfish curvedness, what Adam does in this place exemplifies that. Now notice from this incident that you don't have to lie to play the blame game. Adam responded truthfully to God. Eve indeed had given Adam the fruit. So seeing that what they said was true, doesn't he have a valid excuse, you might say? Adam says, don't blame me. I didn't take the fruit off that tree. She just gave the fruit to me and I ate it. I wouldn't have eaten it, you see, God, if it wasn't for that woman. And so how can I be responsible for what happened? Now, first of all, he knew the command. And he knew it better than her because she hadn't been created yet when the command had been given. The prohibition was back in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Adam was the only one to, to hear it firsthand. Above all, he was responsible to obey. And secondly, according to chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, this is jumping ahead, when God announced the curse that was to come upon Adam, God says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The voice of his wife, he uses an excuse. God says, this condemns you. You were to be in charge. You were given the command. You were to protect your wife. You failed. And so God didn't accept this blame shifting of Adam against his wife. But then secondly, Adam blames God. We read in verse 12, Then the man said, The woman that you gave me to be with me, She gave me of the tree, and I ate. So Adam, the criminal, he tries to play the victim in this whole sordid affair. And by blaming Eve, the gift, and by blaming God, the giver, he portrays God, and he portrays the woman as the instigators of the whole thing. And he's just the unwitting victim, you see. He places himself last in his reply. He applies that he's the least responsible of all these participants between himself and between God and his wife. He says, as it were, God, you were the one that put this dangerous creature by my side. I am completely innocent. It's your fault. You were the one that set me up with this temptress. Why did you burden me with such a woman? Why didn't you just give her a garden all by herself? Why did you put her next to me? Anybody is at fault, it's you. And here Adam takes the side of Satan. Satan argued that a better God wouldn't withhold anything from his people. Satan implied that a better God wouldn't have put a tree that you couldn't eat of in the garden. And Adam, he likewise argues, just like Satan, that a better God wouldn't have given him Eve. And later on, Eve implied that it was the serpent that God had created and had put there. And it was 
it was this, the serpent's fault. And implicitly, it's God's fault for creating the serpent. So you see, on the surface, uh, on the surface they seem to have, ha- have some valid arguments. Take the tree out, no problems. Remove the woman, no problems. Remove the serpent, no problems. So really, it's all your fault, God. You made all these things. This is blasphemy. And sad to say, men have never stopped blaming God. Proverbs 19 and verse 3 says, The foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. This is how our hearts are perverse even to this very day. We are willing to trace our sin right back to God and accuse God of our own sins. We do it day after day. We blame God for our poor choices. We complain if it wasn't for these circumstances, God, this would never have happened. And when you say this, you're blaming God. Because you know good and well that God is sovereign over the circumstances that you're in. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, we read, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. It's not God's fault. It's not other people's fault. It's not even Satan's fault that you sin. It's my evil desire that drags me away and entices me. That's what James says. It's my fault. I'm to blame. We blame God when we say, well, God, if I had more money, I would tithe. I would give to to the church and to the gospel. Or we say, God, if, if I didn't have such a hard time studying, I'm just not the studious type. I guess all I have to do is just dig ditches. And then... We, we blame God for just not dropping a wonderful career into our laps and, being, and we, we become lazy. And we say, well, God, don't blame me. I tried a couple times to get a better job and nothing happened. I guess you just meant me for me to fail. And so when it doesn't work out, we blame God. Or, well, God, I tried to wait for a Christian woman, but things are not moving fast enough, you see, and I'm getting older And I guess I have no other choice than to marry this unconverted woman, and maybe she'll get saved after all. And so when we fail to act according to God's will and the marriage doesn't work out, what happens? We say it's God's fault. He didn't give us a wife on time. But in reality, we are to blame if we don't see God's direction and wait upon his timing. Or we justify ourselves saying, in effect, well, I fornicated because you gave me such powerful hormones. And I couldn't help it. Lord, it's your fault, the way you made me. So we have here in this account how Adam blames Eve and how he blames God. Secondly, but now coming back to Genesis chapter 3, notice in the third place that Eve blames the serpent. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Maybe we could paraphrase God's question and we could put it in modern language. What in the world did you just do? That's the way it comes across. It's as if God expresses his astonishment at what's taken place. And he wants Eve to be horrified over what's just been done. But sadly, this wasn't Eve's response. 
the second half of verse 13, we have her answer. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So like her husband, Eve doesn't show the slightest degree of contrition. Instead, she too resorts to blame shifting. And her answer, it lacks some of the ugliest features that are in Adam's answer. She doesn't blame her husband. If only as the head of the house he would have held me back and taken his responsibility, I wouldn't have done the wrong thing. She doesn't say that. And she doesn't say, well, the serpent that you made deceived me. And she admits that she's been deceived. The serpent fed her a line, and she swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. And still, she didn't take responsibility, did she, for her sin? She puts the blame upon the serpent. And she claims, in effect, that she's not to blame. But did the snake cause her to sin? Absolutely not. The serpent, this beautiful creature that looked beautiful at that time, that Satan was using, this creature just provided the occasion and opportunity for her to sin. And like Adam, her own free will, she chose to disobey God. She took the first step without counseling her husband. And her husband then willingly entered into their mutual rebellion against God's will. And like Adam, she then tried to pretend that she was wholly innocent. She was just a victim, you see here, of the situation. This is the way it is with all sinners, my dear people. This is what we do. This is so sad. This is us. This isn't just Adam and Eve. This is us. They want to think of themselves and to have others think of them as righteous. That's what sinners do. And implied in Eve's words is this thought that if it wasn't for that nasty snake, this never would have happened. And since the snake was one of God's creatures, even though she doesn't specifically say so, the excuse indirectly lays the blame at God's doorstep. And so as Martin Luther, the reformer, observes, thus out of a human sin comes a sin that is clearly demonic. I call this demonic sin and not a human one because the devil everlastingly hates, accuses, and damns God but exonerates himself and it is not possible for him to say from his heart, Lord, I have sinned, forgive me. Now conspicuously absent from the responses of Adam and Eve was any genuine heartfelt repentance. Oh, that instead of this blame shifting, they immediately had fallen upon their knees, confessed their sins, and wept over what they had done. If only the words of the returning prodigal had come from their lips, we have sinned against heaven, and we are no longer worthy to be called your children. Forgive us, O Father. If only we could read something that was like the demeanor of the tax collector who beat upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And likewise, if you are blame shifting before God, know this. Blame shifting and genuine repentance are mutually exclusive. You're not repenting as long as you're making up excuses. And know this. When God comes to you with his word, he's not asking for your history. 
He's looking to see whether you're going to acknowledge your sin and whether you will do this without adding excuses. Well, it's exceedingly hard, though, to bring sinners to confess their sins without excuses, without reservations. Sin is an exceedingly shameful thing. We don't like to have other people know about it. But the more sinners sin, the less shame they feel. We read of the adulterous woman in Proverbs 30 and verse 20. She's hardened her heart, you see. She eats and wipes her mouth, and she says, I've done no wickedness. And may it not be so with you or with me. Well, this prompts me to get specific about this whole matter. Here I want to give you a few examples of what we've called passing the buck in the outline that is in your, there in your bulletins. Will Rogers once remarked that there are two eras in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. But actually, as we've just seen, the passing of the buck took place at the dawn of history. And it seems that there's nothing more universal among people everywhere. The Metropolitan Insurance Company once wryly listed these among its clients' excuses. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. The other car collided with mine without warning me of its intention. And on and on these excuses go. And we all know that to err is, is human. And if we're instructed by the Bible, we know that to blame it upon others and upon God is, is, is just as human because we're sinners. But let me mention a few common ways in which we pass the buck. First of all, blaming other people. When Moses was met, when he met with God on Mount Sinai, and the people saw that he delayed his coming down, you remember he was up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights receiving God's law, his instructions. When this was taking place, at the bottom of the mountain, the people said to Aaron, come, let's make gods that go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron then had them bring their gold earrings, and he fashioned a molten calf. And then he proclaimed a feast before the Lord. And when Moses finally descended from the mountain, Moses' anger waxed hot at this sight of this idolatry. And he asked Aaron what happened. And listen to what Aaron says in Exodus chapter 32, beginning with verse 22. So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. So he blames the people for their depravity. Hey, these people, they, they wanted a god, Moses. What was I supposed to do? They were all ganging up on me, you see. They wanted a God to lead them, in, lead them in and out. And you were gone, by the way. And so it's your fault because you were away. And what could I do? And then he blamed the furnace for this amazing ability for this furnace to produce a calf. All I did was just throw in all this gold and out came this calf. Amazing. So you're driving 75 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone. And you're pulled over, you're given a ticket that gives you enough points to make you lose your license. Well, who's to blame? Not you. It's the officer's fault. He's not been sympathetic enough to your circumstances. 
you pull through McDonald's for some hot coffee. And while trying to drive your car and eat your egg McMuffin that morning in your hurry, you spill your hot coffee all over yourself and you get some minor burns on your lap. And who's to blame? Well, obviously not you. Never mind the fact that printed right on that cup it says, warning, content's hot. But you're, you see, it's the fault of those workers in McDonald's for making it too hot. You blame them. Or how about this one? The man tried a stunt that required him to swallow razor blades. And he ends up at the hospital for emergency care and a huge bill. He took responsibility, right? Wrong. He ended up suing the, the hospital because the, the, the radiation was harmful to him that they had to use to discover where these, these, these blades were. He didn't want any responsibility for what he had done. Well, these are the ways in which every day people excuse their stupidity and, and many times their sins. But especially tragic is the way we blame others for our sins. The adulterous husband blames his wife for not being good in bed. You get caught with, at something at work, and your first response is, who ratted me out? And instead of accepting responsibility for what you just did, you want to know who blew the whistle. As if to say, if it wasn't for him telling on me, I wouldn't be in this hot water. No, if it wasn't for your actions, you wouldn't be in this mess. You need to stop blaming the one who did the right thing when you did the wrong thing. But you blame the person who did the right thing instead. The disciplined church members, furious over the way his sin was exposed, so he lights into the person that confronted him over his sin. And when he didn't repent, took it to the elders, and then finally it was taken to the church. So instead of repenting over his divisiveness or whatever it was, he leaves the church. And he spreads rumor all over the place that this church is legalistic, it's judgmental. You better stay away from that church. Or you have a particularly provoking child. And so you struggle controlling your anger and dealing with that child. So after one of your outbursts, instead of asking for forgiveness from your child, you say, sometimes I wish you had just never been born. And then those words have come out and you can never take them back. Or perhaps children. This happens with children. We, we're good at doing this, blame shifting, even as little children and as young people. Your brother, you've been building a tower and Accidentally, the, the tower gets knocked over. And so in your anger, you hit your brother. And then right away, you start screaming at each other. And when your mother comes in to find out what's going on, what do you say? He started it. He was the one that was at fault. That's what we do, you see. We don't want to blame ourselves for what we just did. It takes two to fight. Both of you are sinners. Both of you need to confess. But instead, you want to blame. That's what we do, because we don't want to confess our sin and be right with God. So we blame other people. And there's the tendency to blame circumstances. Let me give you a few examples from insurance reports submitted to one insurance company. The guy was all over the place. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. Or as I approached the intersection, a stop sign suddenly appeared at a place where no stop sign had ever appeared before, so I was unable to time, stop in time for the accident. 
The telephone pole was approaching fast. I was attempting to swerve out of its path when it struck my front end. The pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I hit him. So we make these ludicrous excuses. We laugh at them. But this is how ludicrous it is in the eyes of God when we excuse our sins. It's worse even then. When the prophet Samuel told King Saul to wait seven days for him to come and offer sacrifice and tell him what to do, Saul waited almost the the prescribed length of time. But before he arrived, he disobeyed and he offered the sacrifice on his own. And I wish I had time to read the passage, but he blames the people. The people wanted to do it, and the people were hiding, and, and, and the, I was feeling such great, great danger, and I had to do something, and so I offered the sacrifice in disobedience. So you're tempted to cheat on exam. You say, it's, it's just not your fault that you got that difficult professor that never makes anything plain. And so many other pressures in your life. It's not your fault that you're in this situation. So you you got to just look over the shoulder here of somebody else to get a little help. Or you blame God for everything that led to your infidelity. A wife that never stops scolding you. A job that requires a lot of travel. The far off place. The loneliness. Your poor self-image. And a woman that makes you feel like a million bucks on this trip that you took. You blame it all on God on these circumstances. Or you gradually slip into the habit of skipping church. And it bugs you that certain members begin to want to know why they were, you were gone. And so you think, don't they know the pressures that I'm under? Isn't this to be a day of rest after all? And so what's wrong with sleeping in sometimes? Or, or, or what's wrong with going to the beach instead of going to church? Isn't God everywhere? And so you blame your circumstances for your sin. People blame this all the time. Another thing is blaming your temperament. From Freud onwards, too many psychotherapists have refused to take moral guilt seriously. They operate with a view of human nature that's based on the determinism of one's biological instincts and one's genes. It's all in the genes, you see, why you behave you did, the way you did. And they function with what's called a medical model. You see, all your problems, all your sins, it's just like, you know, catching the flu. You know, you couldn't help it that you caught the flu. It's just, it was just, you just get it. You caught it. But the Bible treats this, you see, not as the impersonal result of some kind of random evolutionary selection, but as men and women created in God's image. And is sovereignly brought into the world by a God who was even superintending us as we were in our mother's womb, Psalm 139. And the Bible clearly teaches us that we were duty-bound to obey God's commands. That we are not the prisoner, you see, of some kind of a temperament that we have. We're responsible to obey. But rather than take responsibility for our sins, we excuse ourselves. God has given me passions and drives that are so strong I, I can't help yielding to them. Or we say, it's, it's my God-given hormones. Or we refer to some particular passion or appetite or our exquisite tastes or our proclivities, our insecurities and all these kinds of things. We say to ourselves, God made me this way. What else can I do? 
or with respect to those sins that are hardly thought of as sins in the world. We just speak of them as weaknesses rather than as our willfulness. And then finally, there's the tendency to be blaming victimhood. R. Ken Hughes, he puts his finger on the spirit of our age. If you read Adam's sin through the lens of today's world, you see the language of victimhood. Adam as the poor victim of the woman and of the God who gave her to him. In the modern version, it goes like this. God, you're responsible for my situation that's left me so susceptible to sin. My upbringing, my abuse, my inept parents and the teachings. And it plays into our culture, you see, of therapeutic exculpation. In other words, excusing everything away, like that of the Menendez brothers who murdered their parents and then asked the court for mercy on the grounds that now they're orphans. And so this is what we do. We're just victims, you see. What else could we do? And this is, this, is, this is what's behind the whole mentality of people that think they could just go into stores and walk out with armloads of goods, you see, because these systems against them, so they've got to take back some of what's their own. Or a Christian excuses earning money under the table and not reporting it on his taxes because the system keeps them down and because the government used their taxes for bad purposes. So we blame uh, uh, the whole system. We're just the victims. Well, these are just some of the ways in which we pass the buck. But Proverbs 28 and verse 13 tells us in no uncertain terms that nobody will ever succeed in passing the buck in this way. In that place, God solemnly declares, he who covers his sins shall not prosper. God will not be mocked. He won't allow his laws to be defied without consequences. He has reiterated this principle again and again in his word. Moses warned the tribes that wanted to settle on the east side of the Jordan lest they fail to help their brethren in the conquering of the land. And he says, if you do not do so, in other words, you don't do your duties, you said you would, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. You won't prosper. Isaiah 29, 15 declares, Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, Who sees us and who knows us? And to those that try to cover their sins in Jeremiah 16, God says, My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my face. I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin." Sometimes the fulfillment of these words, whoever covers his sin shall not prosper. Sometimes the fulfillment comes in this life. Achan's sin is discovered and he gets stoned. David's sin of adultery is discovered. He thought he could do it secretly. God says, I'm going to do this whole thing publicly. Everybody's going to know what you did. But the ultimate fulfillment of the threat of Proverbs 28, 13 He who covers his sin shall not prosper. Ultimate fulfillment will be on the last day, my friends. The book of Ecclesiastes ends with these solemn words. God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
In Romans 2.16, we're told of that day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Luke 22, there's nothing covered that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you've spoken in the ear in, in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. So know this, my friend. If you go on covering sin, coming up with excuses and taking no responsibility but blaming everybody else, if you keep doing that until the day you die, you're going to stand before God and you will be judged every secret and you won't have any excuses that will work on that day. God is looking right now, my friend, for open, transparent confession, owning up to what you've done. He's looking for open confession, honest confession. He's looking for sincere confession. He says in the the Proverbs 28, whoso confesses and forsakes it. A confession that doesn't just in the back of your mind say, well, I guess I'm going to do it again tomorrow. It's a confession that wants to be done with the sin. And to you that sincerely confess your sin in this way is a wonderful truth, the truth of Psalm 32. And I want to read from that psalm as we close our thoughts this morning. In psalm 32, in the first five verses, David speaks about his experience after he'd committed his great sin. He says in verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute or not charge iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he describes what he did before. When I kept silent, my bones grew, grew old. In other words, I didn't confess it. I was silent. Through my groaning all the day long, for a day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the draught of summer. But then God changed his heart. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He describes that forgiveness as being in a state now in which the sin is covered. But it's not covered by your excuses. It's covered by God's forgiveness. He speaks of those that no longer cover their sins, but have their sins covered not by deceitful blame shifting, but by God. And Paul tells us how this takes place. It's not by passing the buck in all the ways that we talked about earlier in this sermon. It's by passing the buck in a different way, and the only way that is going to be right. It's by passing the buck to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, pass the blame to me. He came and he says, I came to take the guilt. I came to suffer for you. I came and I died. On the cross, there was an end, you see, of passing the buck. The buck stopped at the cross of Jesus. The perfectly blameless one. He hung between two criminals. He hung as the innocent one among the guilty ones. But one of those two criminals, he repented. He confessed his sin. He placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the darkness of Calvary, that man's sins were lifted from him. And they were placed on Jesus. And even so, if you repent of your sins, if you confess your sins, and if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, my friend, the so-called 
buck of your guilt, you see, will no longer be upon you. It will have rested on Jesus who removed it once and for all, who died for your sins. So I urge you to stop passing the buck in all the ways we've talked about. All your attempts to shift blame to people, circumstances, temperament, and the like. Openly confess your sins. Go to Jesus by faith. Go to the one who for this very reason came that the blame might be shifted to him in order that you might be forgiven, that you might be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you have sent unto us the one through whom we might actually have our sins covered. Even the Lord Jesus, who shed his blood to cover our sins. And we do come to you, Lord Jesus, confessing that we are the sinners and you are the righteous one. And by faith, we rest not in anything that we have done or ever could do, but we rest in you and in your suffering and in your perfect life. Our faith is in you, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that anybody that's been trying to pass the buck in this room and making a, a career out of it, of blaming other people and everything else, bring such ones to faith in you, Lord Jesus, and to entrusting themselves into your care that they might be saved both now and in eternity. And all of us, even as Christians, who revert to this tendency again and again, forgive us, we do pray. Cleanse our hearts of this awful tendency to shift the blame. Help us to be honest and open before you, to confess and to forsake our sins, and above all, to find grace in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his holy and blessed name. Amen.